0: If you would, please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, a very familiar passage this morning, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, Acts 2, 42 to 47. We won't be doing as much an exposition of this passage, but we will be using it as a springboard to discuss the topic of the fellowship of the church. Let us read Acts 2, 42 to 47. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one another in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of God. Let us pray. Father who is in heaven, Thank you for being our great shepherd. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the good shepherd, the true shepherd, the shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. Thank you for guiding us, for caring for us, for protecting us, for watching over us. Thank you for raising yourself from the dead through the blood of the eternal covenant, so that we could become one in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, O great Father. Thank you, O Holy Spirit. Thank you for your shepherding care on your flock. Help us as we turn to your word this morning. May you speak to us through it. May you shepherd us through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1623, British Christian poet John Donne fell seriously ill. He thought he was on his deathbed. It was at this time that he wrote his most famous poem, Meditation 17. And it was in this poem that he wrote his most famous words. Perhaps you have heard of them. John Donne wrote, no man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. Any man's death diminishes me because I am involved in mankind. And therefore, never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. The point is very clear. Isolation is unnatural. Isolation is inhumane. Isolation is unhealthy. When any man seeks to isolate himself purposefully from everybody else, he is acting against his nature. Instead, human beings are meant to be part of a community. No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If this is true for human beings, then it is also true for Christians. If this is true for all humanity, then this is most certainly true for the new humanity, the church of the living God. If you read your Bible, you will notice that Scripture is saturated with the reality that Christianity is communal. The pages of scripture are steeped in a corporate Christianity. But we in America are steeped in a different ideal. We in America are immersed in the ideal of rugged individualism. Self-reliance, self-identity, self-accomplishment. I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. That is a distinctly American ideal we must realize that the ideal of rugged individualism is opposed to the nature of the Church of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest obstacles that we as Christians have in applying the doctrine of the Church to our very own lives is our own culture. And we are blind to it. You see, the Church is not just me and Jesus. The Church is just me and the people of Jesus. The church is not just you yourself deciding to follow Christ. It is you yourself deciding to follow Christ with all the other people who decide to follow Christ. If God is my God, then his people are also my people. Discipleship is a community project. No man is an island entire of itself. That is why in a series on the Church, it behooves us to discuss the topic of fellowship. And that's what we'll be doing this morning as we continue in our series on the Communion of the Saints. This morning marks a transition. The first half of our series, we discussed the doctrine of the Church. The second half of this series, which commences today, we will explore the practice of the Church, the practical side of Church life. The practical side of church ministry. And this morning, we will do so by discussing the fellowship of the church. I'd like to unpack this by examining five integral aspects of biblical fellowship. First, fellowship is defined by participation in Christ, fellowship is defined by participation. In Christ, John Piper defines fellowship as the mutual bond that Christians have with Christ that unites us in a profound and eternal relationship of love that should express itself in joyful and affectionate service for each other's good. Now, I believe this is a biblical definition of fellowship and I believe this will be borne out in our passage here this morning. Acts 2.42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, as you well know, the underlying Greek word used in the New Testament for fellowship is the Greek word koinonia. Koinonia itself comes from the root word koine. Koine means common. And as you have perhaps heard, the New Testament was written in Koine Greek, that is common Greek, the Greek of the common people, the Greek of the common folk. The main idea of koinonia then is sharing something that is in common. Sharing. Sharing in a common endeavor, sharing in a common enterprise, sharing in a common hobby, sharing in a common interest. It can be variously translated as participation, partnership, union, communion, or communication. And you can hear in all of these renditions of the word the aspect of sharing. It was commonly used in economics where it referred to a shared business partnership. Or it was used to refer to marriage, the shared life of two people together. So in isolation, by itself the word koinonia was not necessarily a Christian word. But the New Testament writers took the word and Christianized it. They took pains to show that our fellowship in Christ, the true Christian koinonia, is unlike all the other fellowships in the world. It is unlike all other kinds of fellowship. Christian fellowship is not just a shared financial endeavor It is not just a shared hobby, a shared interest, shared sports team, shared liking of food. Christian fellowship is defined by the shared participation we have in Christ. True Christian fellowship is defined by Christ. What makes our fellowship distinctly Christian is Christ. First John 1.3 says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are the community of saints in union with Jesus Christ. We have fellowship with one another because we first have fellowship with Christ. We have fellowship with each other because we first have fellowship in the Son. Christ is the basis of our fellowship. Christ defines our fellowship. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored at Westminster Chapel, London, during World War II. And during World War II, soldiers from all across the world, all across the globe, went to London to fight for a single cause. They shared that in common. But a few of them, a few of the soldiers, had more than that in common. They were Christians. And they used to get together every Sunday to go to Westminster Chapel to hear the great doctor preach. Well, it was lloyd Jones's custom to retire to his study after his message, after the service, and have people come to speak with him one-on-one in his study. And he noticed something every time one of these random Christian soldiers would come to speak with him in his study. Lloyd-Jones said, they knew me. They knew me. They had never met him before. They had no prior relationship with him. They didn't even come from the same country or the same culture. But they knew him. There was a bond that was there. There was a bond that was deeper than political ties. A bond that was deeper than cultural ties. A bond that was deeper than racial ties, a bond deeper even than biological ties, and that was their bond together in Jesus Christ. They knew me. They had fellowship together because they first had fellowship in the Son. So if fellowship is indeed rooted in our shared participation in Christ, we must be careful to avoid two practical errors when it comes to Christian fellowship. The first error to avoid is, we must never subtract from or reduce the meaning of fellowship. We must never subtract from the basis of fellowship. In America today, many evangelicals tend to think of fellowship as merely social events. Just social activities. Men's breakfast, barbecue, potluck, get-together, vacationing together, hanging out. That's fellowship. But true Christian fellowship must move beyond men's breakfast, barbecues, potlucks, vacationing together. It must be something beyond that. Do you know how I know that? Because the world can do these things too. The world... have potlucks the world can have men's breakfast the world can vacation together and they can do it all without naming the name of christ but what makes our fellowship distinctly christian it is christ christ is what makes our fellowship distinctly christian our sharing of christ our union with christ brethren small talk is good hanging out is good Activities are good. Social events are good. I am not debating the merits of these things. We should continue to do these things. I am a believer that quantity time precedes quality time. The more time you spend together, the more time you get to know each other, you will have deeper relationships, deeper bonds, deeper conversations. I am not debating the merits of these things. They are good. But all I am saying is that we ought to move beyond small talk in our activities together, we ought to do something that the world knows nothing of. We ought to encourage one another in Christ. We ought to edify one another in Christ. We ought to spur one another on in Christ. Would it not be a shame if you had a potluck and all evening you didn't say anything that was remotely Christian? You didn't discuss anything that was remotely spiritual. In our potlucks, in our breakfasts, in our vacations, we must always remember Christ defines our fellowship. Christ is the basis of our fellowship. There's another error we must avoid. We must never subtract from the meaning of fellowship but we must also never add to the meaning of our fellowship. We must not add to the basis of our fellowship. For instance, well, that Christian has a different political view than I do, so I'm not going to fellowship with that person. That person is in a different social class than I am, so I'm not going to fellowship with that Christian. That person is of a different race and culture than I am, so I'm not going to fellowship with that person. That person went to USC, so I'm not going to fellowship with that person. They're not like me. They're not like me culturally or politically or socially or racially, so I'm not going to fellowship with that person. I'm just going to fellowship with the people who are like me. You know what you are doing? You are adding to the criteria of fellowship you are adding to the basis of fellowship. What you are doing is basing your fellowship on peripheral issues. You are making peripheral issues, central issues. You are making secondary issues, primary issues. You know what the primary issue of fellowship is? Christ. You know what you do have in common with that person, with that Christian? Christ. Christ is the basis of our fellowship. We must never subtract from him, and we must never add to him. Secondly, fellowship is reflective of the Trinity. Fellowship is reflective of the Trinity. When true Christians engage in fellowship with one another, they do nothing less than reflect the triune God himself. Now, what do I mean? Well, you have to understand that the first fellowship did not occur in Acts chapter 2. The first fellowship did not occur in the Old Testament. The first fellowship did not occur in the Garden of Eden. The first fellowship occurred in eternity past, within the Godhead himself. In John 17, 21, Jesus prays for the church that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity in fellowship is nothing less than a reflection of the eternal unity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Baker Evangelical Dictionary says, Koinonia has its origin in a movement out of the internal, eternal, Relation, relatedness, and communion of the Godhead, of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Koinonia for believers is thus a participation within human experience of the communion of the living God himself. Do you hear what that is saying? That is saying that when we fellowship, we fellowship because God first fellowshiped within himself. Before there was ever a world, before there were ever stars or planets, before there was ever an Adam or an Eve, God was in fellowship with the eternal Godhead himself. God the Father was in fellowship with God the Son, who was in fellowship with God the Spirit, and our fellowship together is none other than a reflection of this eternal fellowship within the Godhead. When we fellowship with each other, we follow the Trinitarian blueprint that is revealed to us. Now, if this is true, then the implications of our fellowship are far-reaching. Its roots stretch from eternity past to eternity future, but not only that, the implications stretch outside of our church walls to an unbelieving world. Look at the direct application that Jesus makes. John 17, 21 again. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. John thirteen thirty five. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. When we are unified in fellowship, we shine forth our triune God to a watching world. When we are unified in fellowship, we bear witness that the Father has sent the Son. Our fellowship with one another has the power not only to edify, but the power to evangelize. Our fellowship with one another has not only the ability to edify the believers, It has the ability to evangelize unbelievers. It's been said that there is no more powerful testimony than the testimony of a changed life. Well, I agree and I disagree. What about the testimony of 200 changed lives? What about the testimony, what about the power Of 200 changed lives, living together in sweet fellowship. What about that power? May it be that every unbeliever who walks through the doors of Cornerstone Bible Church be amazed at the culture of grace that is here. A church that is unlike the world. A place that is distinct from the world. A place that is different from the world. I'm not talking about the pulpit or the chairs or the walls or the building. I'm talking about the people. A place where we love each other. A place where we seek each other's good. A place where we are patient and forgiving of each other. A place where we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. A place where there is no gossip, no backstabbing, no lying, no adultery, no hatred, no racism. There is not even a hint. A place where we are united for one cause together the cause of Jesus Christ do not underestimate the evangelistic power of the fellowship of God's people thirdly fellowship is representative of new life fellowship is representative of new life acts 244 And all those who had believed were together. Then Acts 2.46. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Notice the sequence of events. Verse 44. All those who had believed, they believed first. They became believers. Then verse 46 they had gladness and sincerity of heart in fellowship with other believers. After their conversion, they were happy to fellowship. They wanted to fellowship. They were desirous to fellowship. Fellowship was not drudgery to them. Fellowship was a joy to them. They did not have to force themselves to be in fellowship. They wanted to be in fellowship. This passage illustrates for us the newness of our life in Christ. It points to the reality of new affections, new desires, new appetites. You see, when you are converted, you don't just do new things, like read the Bible, pray, go to church, which you should. But when you are converted, becoming a Christian is not just about doing things that are new. Becoming a Christian is about becoming someone who is new. You are reborn, regenerated. You are a new creation. When you are saved, when you are reborn, you become a new person with new affections, new desires, new joys, new appetites. Christ changes your view of the Bible. Christ changes your view of church. Christ changes your view of prayer. Christ changes your view of family. Christ changes your view of your career. And Christ changes your view of other Christians. When you were a non-Christian, perhaps you saw other Christians as boring, uptight, silly, closed-minded. Why would you ever want to go to church youth group on a Friday night instead of hang out with anyone else? Why would you want to go to church on Sunday morning instead of watch NFL football? You did not have any particular desire to be around other Christians you had very little in common with them. But after you became a Christian, you have a new affection for the people of God, a new joy to be amongst the people of God. You desired true Christian koinonia. This is one of the signs of conversion, one of the signs of new life. A new Christian seeks fellowship, Just as a newly born baby seeks oxygen, a newly reborn Christian seeks fellowship. Seeking fellowship is not a way to become a Christian, but seeking fellowship is a way to tell if you are a Christian. Don't take it from me. 1 John 3.14 says, we know, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. One of the signs of new life is seeking fellowship. One of the litmus tests of new life is loving the brethren. The true lover of God will also necessarily love God's people. Lloyd-Jones tells a story about when he first became a Christian, Noticed something had changed about him. Lloyd Jones was highly educated and highly accomplished. He was a physician and he was climbing the ranks of royal society, in fact. He was brilliant and well off, he was running in the highest circles. But when he became a Christian, he came to this realization. Lloyd Jones said, I suddenly realized I would rather talk about the Lord all day with the humblest old fisherwoman than to sit in a club with my social peers in the company of the highest circles who don't know him. I feel a oneness with the people, with people who are not from my class at all. Lloyd-Jones realized through his relationships, through fellowship, that he had become something different. He had become someone different. True Christians seek fellowship. True Christians yearn for fellowship. So this means that if you do not desire fellowship, if you have no desire at all to speak of Christ, then something is wrong. You've got a heart problem. The state of our fellowship is an index of our hearts. Love of the brethren is one of the indications of spiritual health, spiritual vitality. If you do not love the brethren, this may indicate spiritual unhealthiness. If you have absolutely no desire to speak of Jesus, if you have absolutely no desire to be around other Christians, then test your heart. This may indicate spiritual decline. Or perhaps that there is no spiritual life to speak of. Fourth, Fellowship is marked by mutual investment, mutual investment. Acts 2, 44 to 46, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now what should immediately strike us about this verse is the mutuality of fellowship. They were sharing things. They were sharing with all. They had one mind. They were taking their meals together. There was mutuality there. There was reciprocity there. There is a reflexive nature to true Christian fellowship. There is a reciprocal nature to true Christian fellowship. There are 59 one another's or each other's in the New Testament. There are at least 40 verses in which a one another or an each other appears. Paul captures the idea in Romans 1.12, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. Again, the idea of reciprocity, the idea of mutuality, the idea of reflexive sharing, a sharing together of what you and I both have. J.I. Packer says it best. Christian fellowship is an expression of both love and humility. It springs from a desire to benefit, bring benefits to others. That's love. Coupled with a sense of personal weakness and need. That's humility. It has a double motive. The wish to help and to be helped. To edify and to be edified. It has a double aim. To do and to receive Good. Now, this means very practically that if you are going to have true Christian koinonia, you must have both a desire to give and to receive. True Christian koinonia requires both aspects. So, if your desire is merely to get and not to give, that's not true fellowship. That's a consumer attitude, that's a user attitude. That attitude is rife with modern-day American consumerism. Well, I'm just here to get. I'm just here to get whatever I can get. And if I can't get that anymore, I'm out of here. That's not true fellowship. There's no mutuality there. There's only self-gratification. There's no mutual edification. There's only self-edification. And that's not true fellowship. On the other hand... If your desire is merely to give, again, that's not true fellowship. This is a self-sufficient attitude. I don't need anyone else. I've arrived in my walk with Christ. I've got it all figured out. I'm just here to give. I'm just here to give my ministry. I'm just here to help others. Well, that sounds all well and holy, but what that really reflects is an air of self-sufficiency. It reflects a spirit of elitism the feeling that you're better than others, that everyone else in their Christian walk is still trying to figure things out, but you've got it all figured out. Oh Christian, be very careful that a spirit of elitism does not creep into your heart. O believer, be very wary of running headlong into the trap of spiritual self-sufficiency. True Christian koinonia requires both aspects. We need to be humble enough to receive, and we need to be loving enough to give. We need each other. Everybody knows the word congregation. We often refer to the gathered local church as a congregation. Corporate worship of the local church is congregational worship. Now, congregation, of course, is a biblical word. Acts 6.2 calls the local church the congregation of the disciples. Everybody knows where this word comes from, but it might be helpful, everybody knows this word, but it might be helpful to know where it comes from. When the Bible translators decided to use the English word congregation, they chose it over against the word aggregation. An aggregation is a collection of separate parts. Separate parts. But a congregation is a collection of interconnected parts. All parts touch. All parts are interwoven. All parts are intertwined. Now the classic illustration is this. An aggregation is like a bag of marbles. You can take one marble out of the bag, and all the other marbles will not be disturbed. You'll leave them undisturbed. That is an aggregation, a collection of separate parts. But a congregation is different. A congregation is more like the bricks in a building. The bricks in a building. When you take out one brick, the wall becomes less strong. The wall is weakened. When you take out one brick, the bricks above it, the bricks below it, the bricks around it, are diminished. They are now lacking. That's a congregation, a collection of interconnected parts. Brethren, what have we been saying all along in this series? The church is the New Testament temple of God, built with living stones. The church is the New Testament congregation of God, a building made with us, believers. So I ask you, O Christian, is your brick in its place? Is your stone in its place? Or is there a spot missing in the wall? Because you have purposefully isolated yourself. Are you so incorporated into the New Testament temple of God that you have a specific place in the wall and when you are not there, we are all diminished? The wall is the strongest when all the bricks are together. The wall is the strongest when all the bricks are interwoven, intertwined. Oh, Christian, the other bricks need you, and you need the other bricks. Is your brick in its place? Fellowship is marked by mutual investment. Fifthly, fellowship is sustained by sacrificial love. Fellowship is sustained by sacrificial love. Acts 2.45 says, They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. This verse is about sacrificial love. Bottom line, this verse is about Christ-like, self-sacrificial love mutually bestowed upon the members of the church. They were selling their possessions and sharing to fill needs. You can only do this with joy if you love the brethren more than you love your possessions. You can only do this with joy if you love the brethren more than you love your own comfort. You can only do this with joy if you, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Brothers and sisters, there's one surefire way to destroy a community, selfishness, selfishness. Being pridefully absorbed in self-centeredness, pridefully absorbed in your own comforts, your own preferences, your own opinions, more than anyone or anything else. James 4, 1 and 2 spells it out for us. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You fight, you quarrel, you bicker, you argue. Why? Because you are seeking to please yourself. You're putting your pleasures above everybody else. Your comforts over against everyone else's. Your preferences before my preferences. Your life before my life. This kind of attitude will destroy a community. Selfishness brings death to the community. Now, what is the answer to this problem? What is the antidote to this malady? Jesus gives us the answer in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. How is this a new commandment? I mean, I thought we we're supposed to love each other. Didn't we already know that all the way back in Leviticus? Well, it's new in a very specific way. Love one another even as I have loved you. We are to love one another as our Master has loved us, as Christ has loved us. And what way is that? By laying down his life for us. Jesus laid down his life for us. Jesus gave his life for us. Jesus died for us. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Jesus embodied for us the ultimate example of self-sacrificial love. He showed us that self-sacrifice brings life to the community. On that fateful day at Calvary, Jesus Christ was the loneliest man on the face of the earth. As he was about to drink his father's wrath, his friends betrayed him. His own people bade for his blood. The leaders of his country conspired against him. His enemies mocked him. Even his father in heaven, with whom he shared eternal intimacy, forsook him. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a scream of ultimate loneliness. It was the cry of the damned. Jesus Christ was crying out for community. He was crying out for fellowship. He was crying out for koinonia. And there was no answer, not from earth and not from heaven. It was, without exaggeration, the loneliest act ever in human history. But it was this single act of loneliness that brought life to the Christian community. It was this single act of loneliness that brought life to Christian fellowship. He experienced loneliness so we could experience community. He experienced loneliness so that we could experience togetherness. He experienced being forsaken so that we would never be forsaken. His fellowship with the Father was torn asunder so that we could have fellowship with the Father and with each other. He experienced the cry of the damned so we could sing the song of the saved. Brothers and sisters, Jesus died to bring life to our community. He died to bring life to our fellowship. When I was in college, my discipler, and I were having lunch and I'll always remember these words that he said to me and now I understand them more than ever. He said to me after he had children, I realized that life is more and more about dying to yourself. Life is just more and more about dying to yourself. When I was single, I didn't have anyone else to live for but myself and then I got married and I realized I had to die to myself for my marriage. And then I had children. And I realized that I had to die to myself for my family. Life is more and more about dying to yourself. Thomas Howard discusses the principle of dying to yourself to bring life to others. Howard writes, no child has ever received life except through the laying down of the mother's life in bearing and nourishing him. And somebody has to lay down his or her life to care for and train and provide for children year after year after year. We only live because someone else has lived by this principle of the laying down of a life. This laying down of life always entails a death. The my life for yours principle is the only one in which any life at all is possible. To embrace it is to live, but to refuse it is to spiritually die and spread death. There it is, heaven or hell lurking in your living room. Die to yourself to bring life to the marriage. Die to yourself to bring life to the family. We all know that. But how many of us think, die to yourself to bring life to the church? Die to yourself to bring life to the fellowship. Jesus showed us what that looks like. Jesus showed us what it means to live my life for yours. Jesus laid down his life for us. He gave up his life so our community could have life. And he is calling us to follow in his footsteps. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Oh, Christians, are you laying down your life for the brothers? Are you dying to yourself to bring life to the fellowship? Are you dying to your own comforts, your own preferences? Are you dying to your own selfishness? Not your life to serve me, but my life to serve you. Self-sacrificial love is the kind of love that Jesus exemplified for us. And it is the kind of love that Jesus demands from us. In one of my favorite works of literature, Fellowship of the Ring, J.R.R. Tolkien illustrates for us, through a fantastical world, of hobbits and dwarves, one very simple concept, the concept of self-sacrificial love. But it is not the kind of love that you might think. Most epics are about romantic love, but not this one. The Lord of the Rings is about the shared love between friends, the love between brothers with a shared common goal. It is, as its name suggests, a kind of fellowship. And it is the kind of fellowship that we are to have among the fellowship of the saints. If you know the end of the story, at the end of the book, after the fellowship of the ring has been decimated by selfishness and betrayal, Frodo seeks to escape in a boat. He is trying to bring the ring all the way to Mordor by himself. But Sam will have none of it. He runs after Frodo's boat and jumps into the river after him because he will not let his friend go through this trial alone. The book ends thus. Of all the confounded nuisances, you are the worst, Sam, Frodo said. Oh, Mr. Frodo, that's hard, said Sam, shivering. That's hard, trying to go without me and all. If I hadn't guessed right, where would you be now? Safely on my way. Safely, said Sam, all alone and without me to help you, I couldn't have borne it. It would have been the death of me. It would be the death of you to come with me, Sam, said Frodo, and I could not have borne that. I am going to Mordor. I know that well enough, Mr. Frodo. Of course you are, and I'm coming with you. Frodo actually laughed. A sudden warmth and gladness touched his heart. So my plan is spoiled, said Frodo. It is no good trying to escape you. But I'm glad, Sam. I cannot tell you how glad. Come along. It is plain that we were meant to go together. So Frodo and Sam set off on the last stage of this quest together. Oh, brothers and sisters, Don't forsake the fellowship of the church. Don't forsake the koinonia of the people of God. Let us be a people committed to true Christian fellowship. Let us be a people committed to true Christ-like self-sacrificial love. No man is an island. It is plain that we were meant to go together. Let us pray. Father, who is in heaven, help us to love each other like you have loved us. Help us to sacrifice for each other as you have sacrificed for us. Help us to lay down our lives for the brethren as Christ has laid down his life for us. Help us to love you and to love your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.